0: One of the things that I think is important for any Christian life, and also perhaps even more important for the corporate life of the church, is by the illuminating help of the Holy Spirit to discern the times in which we live. You'll find throughout the New Testament that there are repeated warnings to know the times. Um, Jesus talk, talked about the times in Matthew chapter 24. Paul told Timothy and warned him of the times to come and recognize when they come in 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Timothy 4. And not only just to understand the times in which we live, but in conjunction with that, I think to understand what the Spirit is doing in any one given season of life or a church or even a generation. And in one sense, it's, it's I think, presumptuous to stand up here and say, this is what I believe are the times in which we live, or this is what the Spirit's doing. At the same time, um, I think it's important to have an ear to the ground and be sensitive and then to speak what we sense the Lord is doing in our time. And some of us believe, and I think perhaps many of us believe, that we are living in times in which the Lord is, is refining his church. I say that on the basis of a couple things. One is, is, that the, is the multitude of afflictions that are continuing to surface in our church congregation in conjunction with 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, which says that these things come for the specific purpose of refining God's church and his people. So those two things by themselves leads us to believe that God is in the work of pruning and also purging his church. Refining her through affliction and through tribulation and through hard times. That, that is what the Spirit of God is doing right here, right now, in our time, in our church, is refining. And that is a painful process, as many of you know. It's uh, you know, taken from heating up uh, steel to the point where dross is actually um, comes to the surface and then can be scraped away, leaving uh, a pure metal behind. And that's, that's, in essence, what we believe the Lord is doing is he's turning up the heat to reduce the dross and the impurity in your life and and in this church. And I think if all of us were to be honest, we'd say that there is a lot of dross in our lives and and even in this church. Stuff that the Spirit of God wants to see extracted from our hearts and from the life of this body. Um, But he's doing it for, of course, a positive purpose because in and through that refining process... The Lord revives, he renews, and refreshes. And that's what we're looking forward to, and that's why we're praying in this particular direction, because we believe that's what the Spirit is doing here and now in this church family, is working to reform and renew our faith and our love for Christ. And perhaps we will experience a depth of love and a passion of faith that we have never yet experienced, at least in your lifetime and my lifetime. And that's why we're praying this particular direction. And I personally, speaking just personally here, I am convinced that it is and will happen. It was confirmed to me just this last week as I was meditating on Psalm 147. I got to the portion where it says that the Lord takes pleasure in those who hope. In his steadfast love. That the Lord delights when his people hope in his love. And if Wednesday night prayer is any evidence of this church looking in hope to the steadfast love of God, then I believe God is going to, is taking pleasure, and he will bless, and he will renew. And that's what we're praying for. And I'm convinced it is and will happen. What will it look like as God does it, and as we proceed forward, I don't know. Um, I have learned by both studying scripture and the experience of missionaries like Jim Elliott, as well as my own life, to recognize the way God unfolds things oftentimes surprises us. That God uh, answers our prayers and what we think is a particular direction in ways that uh, defy human expectation and, quite frankly, humble us. Um, touching on the life of Jim Elliot, which we talked about last week, I'm sure that he thought, wow. The Aachen Indians are going to be reached, and certainly they were. But I don't think he had to give his life in order, he thought he had to give his life in order for them to come to living faith. So we leave the outcome to the Lord, but um, I believe the Lord is going to do it. Well, One thing I will say on the other side of that is that will happen, and I believe is happening, and I hope will come to um, to full fruition. That is when God renews his people, it is always in the direction of Christ and his mission. That is that we will see people in mind, heart, life, activity, hands, families, and as a church committed to knowing Jesus and making him known, to use a popular phrase, or to glory in him as well as glorify him, um, to love him as well as bring others into the shadow of his love, that it will always come with that resolve, that forging of, of a heart for Christ and a heart for his kingdom. The kind of heart that wants Christ to be all in all in my affections, in my thoughts, in my life, my family, my neighborhood, and my church. That that will come. That will come. What I'd like to do is look at a community of people whom God renewed in their cause, in their purpose, to which God had called them, like us. We have, over the past three weeks, minus last week, um, been looking at various Jewish kings whose backs were against the wall, and and in various ways, God's steadfast love delivered them. King Jehoshaphat looked helpless and not knowing what to do, looked to the steadfast love of God, and God delivered him um, from his enemy uh, last week or two weeks ago, we looked at King David, who also, in the middle of his sin and brokenness, looked to the steadfast love of God, and God restored, renewed, and recreated him. And here we come yet to another descendant of David, uh, an heir to the throne, a man by the name of Zerubbabel, a mouthful of bees, but nevertheless, uh, someone in that lineage of David and also in the ancestry of Jesus Christ. And it's not so much that his back is against the wall as much as he and his people hit a wall. And then God does a work of renewal. Now, just as a kind of a a side note, one of the things that we've hit on in these series of messages is the importance of prayer, crying out to God in faith that God's love would supply what's needed. And today we come to another ingredient that God uses, a key ingredient to revive and restore and renew his people. So let's look what that is. The story extends from Ezra 1.1 to Ezra 6.22. It's all one complete story, as I think you will see. So let me just touch on some of the high points of these six chapters, ending in Zechariah. The book opens up with a movement of God's spirit, not unlike the book of Acts. Chapter 1, verse 1, we read that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fill with fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. The Lord moved the hearts of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. And this is what he wrote. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. I'm going to stop here for a moment. This event takes place roughly 538-539 B.C. under the great Persian emperor uh, Cyrus, whose heart is stirred and moved by God to send the Jewish people back into the land of promise to build a temple. The reason they have to go back in to build the temple is because they had, prior to this, been exiled. Um, During the time of the kings of Israel, there were good kings and there were bad kings, but generally speaking, everything was in decline. And as a result, God said, I am going to take you out of the land. We might call it a a timeout of sorts of 70 years. And he does. Um, He takes them out. And as a result, the temple is burned and the city is raised to the ground. But after a 70-year period of God disciplining his people, let me just say, while God does discipline his people, including his church, and I think we're in a time of discipline, he never abandons his people. So at this point, 70 years later, God puts in the heart of a pagan emperor to build a temple. He moves and stirs the heart of a king to send the Jewish people back. Down in verse 5, we read that God also stirs and moves in the hearts of the Jewish people to return. Verse 5, then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So here you have in the opening chapter the cause, the mission, what they are to do. They are to return to the land of promise and they are to build for the Lord a temple, a place of worship, a place where he would once again make his name known and exalt his work. So that's the cause. That's the mission. That is what they are to give their heart, mind, soul, lives, hands, effort, sweat, blood and tears to. Build the temple. Our... uh, Our marching orders as a church are no less clear. We don't build with stone, of course, but Jesus left us a mission, a commission, and that is build my people, build my temple, not of stones but of souls, a place in which the name of Christ should be exalted and a place in which God's glory would dwell. That's what the church is supposed to be, and also a light to the nations. Well, back to the story. In the first three chapters, everything progresses at an alarming rate. Everything is going wonderfully. We read in chapter 2 that hundreds and thousands of people return. God has moved, they have left, and they return to the land of promise. By the time chapter 3 happens, we see that in the place of where the old altar was, they reestablish worship. That is, they erect an altar. It says in verse chapter 3, verse 1, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. So they had a unified, singular effort in Jerusalem. And it says that then uh, Jeshua, son of Josedach, excuse me, my pronunciation for some of these difficult Hebrew names, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, this is the descendant of David, son of Sheltiel, And his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. So progress is being made. They have returned to the land, land, they have reestablished the altar, and they have uh, resumed Offering sacrifices, which, as you know, eventually pointed to the final and ultimate sacrifice on the cross in which God would give the Lamb of God for the sins of his people. We find that the feasts are reinstituted. And then down in verse 10 of chapter 3, the foundation is laid of the temple. Verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph with cymbals, took their place to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. What I'm trying to simply point out is that here is a cause, a mission, something that they are to do. And initially, it goes well, without a hitch, um, smoothly. They return to the land. They reestablish the altar. They resume the sacrifices and the feasts. And the foundation of the temple is laid. Everything is going well. And by the way, you notice the song that they sing when they see the temple. When they see the temple foundations laid, it should kind of ring a bell. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. It's the same basic song sung by the choir of Jehoshaphat as they led the armies. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The same truth that David looked to when he said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love. It is and serves as a defense for his people, as that which forgives and recreates and renews his people, and also what serves the success of... Of his people. That's why they're singing. They know that they're there because God loves them. And that's why they've been successful such far, so far. <sighs> now, it's times like these when everything's going well. Chapters 1 through 3. God's moving. When you can expect, without exception, opposition. I mean, it's precisely when, you know... Your life is moving forward in the Lord and you're sensing a a sweet communion with the Lord and you're seeing hearts changed by the Lord and you're seeing people come to Christ and you're seeing the kingdom of God expand. It's right then when you should expect almost as certain as gravity itself that there's going to be opposition. And that's exactly what happens in this story because chapter 4 happens. And it's like a huge iron wall came down and stopped it dead dead in its tracks. And the work of God stalls. We read in chapter 4, verse 4, that then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah. Those are the unbelieving pagans around the land of promise. They set out to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. We have a group of people who see what's going on, seeing the progress of God's plan of rebuilding the temple, and they set out to discourage, to make afraid, and to frustrate. Take notice of those words. To discourage, to cause fear, and to frustrate their plans. Now, at this very time, the prophet Haggai, that we also have in our Old Testament, tells us that there is something else that happens to stall the building of God's temple. Namely, the distraction of wealth, Haggai 1.3. They became distracted by their own paneled houses in conjunction with, and in addition to, this discouragement, this fear, and this frustration, so much so that by the time you get to the end of uh, chapter 4, you read this sad statement. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. You compare this to secular histories and you realize that the work on the temple stalled for 16 years. First three chapters, everything is going great. Chapter four, discouragement, fear, frustration, and distraction stalls what God's doing. In the people, and what he moved the initial pagan king to do. I find it interesting that while times change, people change, nations change, kings change, the same things are used to stop God's work in your life, in my life, and in a church namely, discouragement, fear, frustration, and according to Haggai, distraction. In all that's going on, I'd venture to say that many of you are discouraged. It can come in any form. Discouragement over a broken relationship. Discouragement over unmet expectations. Discouragement over self-doubt. Discouragement over a critical spirit. And it makes you stop. It diverts your attention. Or fear. It's something that binds up God's people and paralyzes them. Fear of the future. Fear of how I'm going to make a living. Fear of where I'm going to live once my house is taken away. Fear of what's going to happen in my children's life, my child's, my son, my daughter's life. Fear of failure. Fear of speaking up. That stops God's people in their tracks, too. Hinders the progress of what God is doing in building his kingdom through us. Discouragement, fear, frustration. When things don't turn out like you thought. Or distraction. I don't think it's it's inappropriate to say that we're coming out of a time, and perhaps still in a time, in which many people who call themselves by the name of Jesus have been so distracted by the accumulation of more stuff. And if you haven't been distracted by the accumulation of more stuff, you've been distracted by the the maintenance of the more stuff you already have. So that the last thing really on our list, in terms of what we live for, is Christ and his cause. Because there's so many distractions around us. Is it any wonder then that the Lord is turning up the heat? And my hope, my prayer, and why we are doing this is so that we will see, God, this is your purpose, and it's a good purpose. You're refining us to forge in us once again a heart for you and a heart for your kingdom. So let's pause for a moment, and let me just ask you, what is it that keeps you from giving your whole heart to Christ and his cause? Think about it, and in your head, name it. What is it? Is it discouragement? Because I see people kind of starting to just survive, not to surge forward. Is it discouragement? Is it you're still afraid? You know, I'm, I'm fearful. Or are you one of those people who can say, yeah, I've been distracted by material possessions and the accumulation of more wealth? What is it for you? Same stuff, stalled the, the temple building for 16 years. The same stuff is stalling progress of the gospel in our time. Well, God doesn't let allow progress to stall for for long because this is his work. We may stall, but he in the end will work. In chapter 5... A turnabout happens. God sends two prophets. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, uh, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God, of the God of Israel who was over them. Verse 2. Get this. As a result of God sending his prophets, it says, Then Zerubbabel, this is the descendant of David, then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of uh Josedach, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. Something happens at this point because two prophets come. It stirs them up to continue what God had started. So they set, they set to work. To rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At that time, Tetanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, these are the pagan overseers of this area. Israel is not an independent entity at this point, still under the umbrella of the Persian Empire. And Shethar, Bozenai, and their associates went to them and asked, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore the structure? They also asked, What are the names of the men constructing this building? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius and written a written reply received. Interesting here is that the wall came down. Discouragement, fear, frustration, and distraction set in. They stopped for 16 years. All of a sudden, God sends his prophets, and it starts again. Now I'm going to come back to what turn things around in a second but not before we look at what comes out of this and the opposition hasn't stopped in other words they're now continuing what god has called them to do despite the opposition the opposition basically comes and says why are who authorized you this and what are your names that's always you know what are your names we want to tell on you the rest of chapter five uh Contains a letter written to Darius, or Darius, the emperor in Persia, and the attempt is you need to shut this thing down. So they send this letter. But in chapter 6, we receive the reply from Darius, the emperor of Persia. And it goes a little bit different than anticipated. Darius does a little research goes into the archives and realizes, wow, my grandfather actually decreed that this place be built, that the temple be reestablished. And so he writes to them back. This is now the emperor to these pagan governors. Verse six. Now then, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates and um, Shethar, Boz and I, and you, their fellow officials at that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work of this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. So basically, hands off, but it gets better. Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God, the expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of the trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Now they got to fund the rebuilding of the temple. Verse 9 Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, mailed, lambs for burnt offerings to the God of the heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and oil as requested by the priests of Jerusalem must be given to them daily without fail so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his, his sons. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone changes this edict, a beam is to be pulled out of his house and he is to be lifted and impaled on it. And for this crime, his house is to be made a pile of rubble. I don't think was the answer that they were anticipating. Hands off by the way you're going to fund from the pagan treasuries the building including the cows and all the things that are needed for sacrifices on top of that under penalty of death you're supposed to do this i will impale you on a beam from your house. That's the response. Now, the effect of that is the Jewish people continue to build wholeheartedly, and they finish the temple, and the chapter concludes with this moment of celebration and joy. Verse 22, the end of the story, of this particular story. Then it jumps to another era. For seven days they celebrated with joy the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing keywords, changing the attitude of the king of Assyria. The king there has to be, the king Darius, who just sent that letter. So that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. So let's just pan back for a second so you kind of get the whole flow. God moves in the heart of the first emperor. And the people of God are moved, and they go, and they start building the temple. They make tremendous progress, and they hit a wall of frustration, discouragement, fear, and distraction. Two prophets are sent, and out of that, two prophets, the people start to rebuild. The attitude of the king is changed, and the temple is constructed, and they give joy. So they have completed what God has called them to do. And they have broken through the wall that caused them to stall for 16 years. The question is, what was it that turned their hearts? What was it that reignited and renewed their fuel to, despite opposition, we will build this temple? What is it that will reignite and renew God's people in this day to say, you know what, I don't care about the opposition. We will rebuild the temple of God, namely the people, the church, so that it will once again exalt the name of Christ and care about the neighbors. And it goes back to these two prophets. And what it comes down to, I think, is quite simple. What changed the stall into this surge forward is that they both received and believed the word of God. And you're like, yeah, what kind of answer is that? Listen, every story we've looked at so far... The turning point in conjunction with prayer was always the word of God. In Jehoshaphat's time, after he prayed, what did it say? The spirit moved upon Jehazael, and he spoke the word of God to them, and they found courage in his word. David's life is going into the pit, and God sends word through the prophet Nathan, and it turns his life around. And here the people are stalled in the work that they've been called to. God sends his word, and they believe it, and it turns things around. In our time, while we may not have prophets in the Old Testament sense, the question is, because I know many of you know the word, but do you believe the word? Now, you could read the entire book of Haggai and the entire book of Zechariah to get exactly the scope of what they said. But I think a pretty good summary can be found in chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. And it gave the people courage and renewed them. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. This is again David's descendant, heir to the throne. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty sent me to you. God declares his power and his purpose. When we often look at every other human means to accomplish what God wants us to do and find ourselves fearful and frustrated when they don't turn out to do what we want them to do, when we find ourselves in a culture that is increasingly anti-Christian with educational institutions that are fundamentally anti-creation and creator and Christian, we might find ourselves thinking, well, we, this is impenetrable. We can't bring the power of the gospel to bear upon this culture. It's too hard. the Lord reminds us, it never was in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It never was by human power or might that these things came down or that the gospel penetrated or the temples were built. But by the Spirit of God. And the people in that time believed in this word that God's Spirit would do it. So based upon this word about the unstoppable power of God, they then proceed forward to build. Because here's the the comment. Here's the word. My spirit will do it. So much so that I love this phrase when it says, What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. It's not just a wall. It's a mountain. You You will be disintegrated to dust, and we will go through you, not by our own strength, but by the power of God. And then his his statement then, it says, um, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the the foundation stone, and they will also complete it. In other words, it will happen. My purposes will be accomplished by my power, and they are unstoppable. And the people who trust that will live with the courage to continue building despite the opposition. And you notice how, how God's power manifested itself in this story. It manifested itself by changing the heart of the most powerful men in that time. God didn't have to part seas. He didn't have to send hailstones of fire. He didn't have to send lightning bolts. God, in one sense, probably did something far more miraculous. He turned the heart of a pagan king called Cyrus at the beginning of the story like he had a bit in his mouth. To do what God wanted. And at the end of the story, God turns the heart of a king named Darius like he had a bit in his mouth, to complete the temple. So it begins and ends with the changing of the hearts of powerful men. That's the power of God, who's, who, who wields power over the hearts of emperors, kings, presidents, congressmen, congresswomen, mayors, city officials, I don't know why we forget that. We, we we're like scared puppies running around thinking, oh, my gosh, the sky is falling. And God says, I, I, listen, I turn the heart of kings and presidents wherever I want so you can trust my power. Whatever this cultural anti-Christian sentiment and spirit is, listen, I got it under control. You just keep building. I think that the word is a fresh word for us. The Lord's saying to Parkway Community Church, listen, I know things are hard. I understand there's opposition without some of us pained within. But don't stop. You keep going, but you keep going. know that it's not going to be by might or by power, but by my spirit. That's how it's going to happen. And whatever's stopping you, I'm bigger than it. I will exalt my name. Look to me and to my strength, my power, and my purposes. Don't let it derail you. Because the minute minute you let those things derail you is the minute that you've lost sight of the power and the purpose of God to exalt his name through his people and bring salvation to other people. This is a word for Parkway. It's a word for me. Don't let the building stop. God is going to do a refinement in our day, which I hope you're a part of, and you're praying for, and you're seeking. It's going to come with the discovery or a rediscovery that the power of Christ exceeds all other powers, and we obey in faith in who he is and his supremacy. And then, and then, I think we'll find the courage to continue on. The courage not to just survive. That's what the enemy wants us to do. Survive. He's happy if you're just surviving life. But the minute that your eyes go up back to the steadfast love of God that is sufficient and more powerful than anything, then you won't just survive. You want to, with Jim Elliott still fresh on our minds, You want to give your heart and soul to what is most important, knowing Christ and building his kingdom. And that's what we're going to be praying about this Wednesday night, for God's purposes to be carried out in his church of glorying in him and also glorifying him. I, my friends, and I hope you with me, do not want to be a part of a church that just survives, but surges forward in the power of of God's Spirit. Will you spend a couple of moments now just praying, Lord, will you show us once again your power? Help us to believe your word, that it is not by any human means that we will accomplish this thing. It will be by your Spirit working and reviving and refining and renewing your people. And ask him to make that a reality in this church and in your life. And then I'll close this um, couple minutes in a time of uh, just a word of prayer.